Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey there, it's Laura. Dr. Anna Lemke is one of our most brilliant science communicators. She's the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, the program director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medical Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's testified before various committees in the US House of Representatives and Senate, has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, and also appeared, you might have seen her, in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, which explored the impact of social media on society and personally scared the shit out of me. She's a clinical psychologist with a thriving practice and also the author of two books, the most recent of which, Dopamine Nation, just debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. I am so grateful that Anna was willing to spend some time talking with me about a topic that is so near and dear to my heart. In Dopamine Nation, Anna explores the new scientific discoveries that explain why the relentless pursuit of pleasure leads to pain. It can be in the form of the things we usually think about, like drugs and alcohol, but Anna also wants us to pay attention to activities like social media and behaviors like rage or the pursuit of love. In this conversation, she helped us get our heads around massive topics like self-binding, which was a huge light bulb for me, and the actual science behind the saying, you're only as sick as your secrets. Anna has some fresh ideas on how escaping the vicious cycle of compulsive behaviors is so much more than abstinence or willpower, thank you. Our brains, our habits, the way we structure our lives, these things all play a huge part. And we also spent some time on the rewards of abstinence. It's a topic that's not discussed as much, and I think the rewards of abstinence are super important for anyone who's trying to gain steadiness in the technology-laden world of constant dopamine hits. This is a hopeful and encouraging episode and one to share with everybody you know who has said, I'd love to stop scrolling, but... All right, enjoy. Hello, thank you for agreeing to be here, especially on short notice. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for inviting me. So how are you doing with publishing week? It's a bit, it's a big energy. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of uh, dopamine highs and lows going on is all I can tell you. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm delighted that it's been so well received I'm just going to dive in. Great. So in chapter five, it's called Space, Time, and Meaning. You talk about this concept of self-binding, and you use this example of, I think it's Jacob, Mm -hmm. as a sex addict. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those moments where I went, oh, my God, I didn't realize what I was doing. Mm. And I even wrote a whole chapter about it in my own book. So 
I'm going to ask you to explain what self-binding is in a minute, but I think it's so powerful because to me it distinguishes the difference between willpower and like proactive choice. And I don't know if you would use different words. I tried to get sober for a year and a half uh, and I really tried to kind of keep my life the same mm-hmm. and get sober in the background right. without everybody knowing and I had a really big job and all kinds of things. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. It wasn't until I realized that I really had to change my life. Like the yeah. change your life is, yeah. is, is something you hear, but it's hard to, to really know what that means because a lot of people can't get out of their lives. You can go to rehab maybe, but a lot of people don't. And even then you have to come back into your life and you have relationships and a job perhaps and physically where you live, you can't change all of that. So this describes to me what it actually means to change your life. The chapter in my book is called Stop Getting on the Train. And it was a literal example of how I got on a train and put myself in this situation where I would have to fight against all these forces, including willpower, in order to not drink. Right. And I didn't end up drinking. I took the train ride home because I had been trying to get sober for, for so long. I knew everything that could have happened if I did go out drinking. And it's like having a near-death experience almost, getting home and having that not happen. You know, I didn't yeah. crash my car. I didn't stay home, stay out all night. I didn't wake up in some strange place. I didn't, the list goes on and on and on, the horrors right, that I had repeated right. so many times. So I said to myself, okay, I need to know exactly what happened this time versus every other time. And that's when I really dove deep into to understanding the science of it. My chapter about stop getting on the train was really about self-binding, but I didn't know that concept. So can you talk about that? Yeah, so great. Well, thanks so much for sharing your own experiences. I always learn, so I appreciate that. One of the fundamental concepts in Dopamine Nation is that we live in an addictogenic world. And what I hate is when my patients, and not my patients, whoever, whoever people are, they're blaming themselves for not being able to abstain. But it's hard because this world is always luring us into using some form of high dopamine drug. It's nearly impossible. And as I say in the book, willpower is a finite resource. And it lasts about a day, if that. And when people are struggling, especially in early recovery with craving, it is nearly impossible to withstand intense craving. And it commands every ounce of energy that we have. And people who have never experienced it don't get it. And one of the ways I try to communicate it is, have you ever had a really bad case of like, poison ivy, right? Where, where you couldn't not scratch it. I mean, it, it, if someone was holding a gun to your head, you still would probably have to scratch it. Yeah. And so the whole idea with self-binding is we have to change our environment. Before we're in the throes of desire, we have to build barriers, both literal and metacognitive, between ourselves and our drug of choice so that when we are craving, there's a wall there. There's a wall that would be very difficult to climb, not impossible. It's never impossible, 
Right. Uh, but, but it would be very difficult to climb. And that's, that's essentially the essence of self-binding. We do have to put those barriers in place before we are craving because willpower just is not enough. Yeah. And it's such a learning process because I mean, alcohol is one of those things that is just ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You really can't avoid it if you're an adult that goes out into the world. So yeah, I, and you know, one of the most painful things that I see in especially um, younger patients who are struggling, especially with alcohol, is that their entire social network is composed of people who drink heavily, some percentage of whom probably are addicted to alcohol. And so there's so much grief that comes with abstinence because you're not just grieving the loss of this drug, your best friend. You also have to say goodbye to a lot of those relationships because you just cannot maintain them and stay sober. So can you give an example for for people on what self-binding might look like for someone who is trying to get sober from alcohol in, you know, in a, in a world like we live in today. Yeah, happy to. I mean, so basically in the book, I divide self-binding into three categories, chronological, categorical, and spatial or geographic. Starting with the last one first, geographic, um, what that basically means is just putting physical distance between ourselves and our drug of choice. So if it's alcohol, it's something as simple as not having alcohol in the home. And yep. a lot of my patients report doing that. Or for example, if you're traveling, a lot of people you know, are on the road for work, calling the hotel in advance and asking them to clear out the minibar. So just little steps like that um, to make sure that there's, it's just not around. And so it sort of takes it off the table. An example of chronological uh, self-binding or using time uh, as the construct is to, I mean, for people who are abstaining, this is maybe not as relevant, but for, for people who are trying to moderate, it would be something like planning um, only to drink on certain days of the week, only for perhaps after completing a milestone event. So sort of just using time as a way to bind our usage. And then finally, categorical self-binding um, is a way of trying to avoid, and again, this is for people who are moderating primarily, yeah. um, not abstaining, but I, I've had many patients say that as long as they just drink wine or just drink beer and don't drink hard liquor, so they avoid that category of more potent alcohol, then they're able to um, abstain or to moderate their use, um, I should say. Yeah, they're able to Oh, if only use. those things worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I know. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I'm honestly, I joke, but I'm, I'm glad they didn't. For me, that was too exhausting to try to moderate. Well, it was impossible, but. Yeah. Um, you know, and it opens up a really interesting but important aspect of this, which is, you know, the temptation to moderate for people with severe addiction is just never going to work out for some folks. But in my clinical experience, People have to kind of do, do their own research on that. Yeah. You know, I can support them. But, you know, at the end of the day, I usually see people have to go a couple cycles around that where they try to moderate, you know, are, aren't able to do it, abstain for a period, try to moderate, aren't able to do it, and then finally, you know, come to the conclusion that, that moderation is not for them. But yeah. I do think that it is important to, to note, and the literature is, is showing this too. There was just a paper that came out this month 
showing that th there is a subset of people with alcohol use disorder who are able after a period of absence to go back to drinking in moderation. Wow. So, I, I, you know, again, it's, it's important to acknowledge that. that I'm so afraid I, I, that you just said that. I, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> because I know it's, we, always, no, it's okay. It's okay. I know yeah. what people will hear. You know, yeah. I, I know what I would have heard seven years ago. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a risk, you know, it's a risk. And if you're in recovery and your life is good, like, why would you gamble with it? Totally. Right? And, and plus, what I find with a lot of patients, even the ones who are successful at moderation, it's exhausting. Like, in order to Ugh. make it work, you have to put a tremendous amount of energy and effort into it. You have to use a ton of self-binding. You have to be really hyper-vigilant. You have to document exactly what you're drinking. So it's, yep. it's like a major, it has to become a major hobby. And ultimately, for, for many, most people, it is not worth it. But the reason that I talk so much about moderation in my book is because there are drugs that we just can't abstain from. And yes. that would include food, right? Yes. I and mean, we have to moderate our food. That would include smartphones. It's really, it has now right. literally become impossible to be a functioning professional and not use a smartphone. And yet the right. smartphone is, you know, such, such a vortex of, of dopamine and, uh, you know, potential addiction. Yeah. And I, I think for me now I'll, I'll be seven years sober this fall. And I just think w the price I would have had to pay or the cost, the energetic cost, the psychological cost, the, 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 even the costs that I don't, I don't know about the unknown unknowns, right? right? To, to try and moderate, to think I would miss out on the things that have come in my life as a result of sobriety, just for what? So that I could have two drinks every Saturday, you know, for what? Like the, the payoff wouldn't be worth it for me. I want to comment on something you just said, which is the, the sort of rewards of abstinence. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we, we don't talk about that enough. Like the kinds of really intangible but very powerful good things that come to us when we sacrifice something in our life, when we're willing to give yes. something up, when we're willing to take the hard road. When you look at those incredible, powerful gifts and you juxtapose them with, well, gee whiz, I, I can't drink wine on the weekends with friends, it, it, it sort of doesn't even compare, right? No. I mean, it's, just, it's like, wh who cares? Like, look at, look at what your abstinence has brought into your life. And it's just... I mean, when people can get to that place where they can see this amazing thing that they've made through sacrifice, um, yeah. it's, it's always a very powerful. I'm glad you said that. I, I totally agree. And, and this goes well into the next sort of question that I had. There's another chapter called Pressing on the Pain Side. And you talk about the relationship between pleasure, pleasure and pain and how they're processed in the same part of the brain, which I didn't know that even having, like I said, studied a decent amount. I didn't know that. And it made me think of this roomy quote that I had printed out and framed before I got sober when I was trying to get sober that says the cure for the pain is in the pain. I've always been someone who makes sense of the world through words and poetry and prose and, and that type of thing. But there's in your book, it's like that is your book <laughs> in a way. There's mm -hmm. like, yeah. or at least a strong mm -hmm. part of your message. Mm -hmm. The cure for the pain is in the pain. I knew somehow that I had to go through a certain amount of pain, like both 
the immediate emotional, physical, psychological pain that comes with stopping drinking those early days. But then the longer term pain was was really what I knew, the pain that I had been pushing off Mm -hmm. for however long, things I hadn't Mm -hmm. processed or metabolized. Uh, Can you talk about that from both from like the the scientific side, as well as as people go through early days of recovery, but also the deeper psychological side of processing past trauma and grief and why that, why we have to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with the, the basic neuroscience. And, and this again gets to the pleasure pain balance. In the first part of the book, I talk about how if we repeatedly press on the pleasure side and flood our reward pathway with dopamine, all our brain can do to compensate for that is to downregulate our own dopamine and our own dopamine receptors, which ultimately puts us in this dopamine deficit state, which mm-hmm. is this dysphoria, irritability, uh, insomnia, anxiety, and mental preoccupation with our drug. And the first step toward resetting our balance is to abstain from our drug, and that is a very painful step in and of itself. So that's already you know, a prescription for pain. And, 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 you know, my patients will come see me with all manner of troubles um, and they'll say, help me. And I'll say, here, here's my prescription for you. I want you to suffer first more so that you can feel better later. And it's really a hard pill to swallow because it's not a pill, right? It's, it's a a thing that says, stop taking the pill, hurt more, reset your brain. And so that, that's the, the very first painful step, you know, acute withdrawal, the come down, but then, then you've got the protracted withdrawal, and, you've, and that can be physiological, but really it's mainly psychological, where now all of a sudden we have to experience all of those negative emotions that we were chasing away with our drug, right? We yeah. have to sit there and let those thoughts and those emotions sort of wash over us. And it, it's hard. I mean, it mm-hmm. is hard, especially when we've been used to going through life you know, numbing ourselves or ignoring those feelings. And this is where I think really good psychotherapy can be helpful, but also meditation, prayer, uh, you know, a good friendship circle, AA. This is the place where we go, wow, you know, I used to drink when I felt this, and now I just have to feel it and I have to kind of sort it out. One of the things that I really love about the 12 steps is that those 12 steps ask us to do that first hard thing, which is abstain, but then keep asking from us to do hard things, probably the hardest of which is step four, where we then have to look at all the crap that, you know, has quote unquote happened to us, you know, in our lives and then say, not like, oh, poor me, but what did I contribute to that problem? And Mm -hmm. that is fascinating to me because it's very different from standard modern psychotherapy where there's a whole lot of empathizing, seeing the patient's point of view, saying kind of poor you, that must have been horrible, your trauma. And I'm not saying that's all bad, but at some point that is not enough, right? You have to then say, okay, well, but what did, what did you bring to the table? And, And so, you know, again, another, another way that I ask patients to hurt and to suffer is to say, yeah, this is so horrible. All these things that happened to you, all this pain you experienced, the fact that you can't numb it anymore if you're going to be in recovery. And then I say to them, but like, what, what's your part in it? Mm-hmm. And so again, at inviting that pain, but that's the only way to get to the truth 
And the truth is the way that we ultimately come to peace because the truth allows us to put the world in order, to see it and ourselves as we really are, and then to be able to be free and make choices because we're making choices based on true and informed decisions. You know, when I was first shopping around this book, I thought to myself, nobody's going to want to publish this book. <laughs> yeah. Because this book is, no one you know, wants it's to hear of, this. Right. Right. Like this is the last thing that people are going to want to be told that, yeah, you want to feel better, feel worse first. You need to hurt. And I've been really surprised that people are receptive to this message. Um, I think probably what it is is that in their own lives, people are beginning to come to this themselves. Yes. You know, this realization that, yeah, that that it's falling on fertile ground and people are saying, yeah, you know what? Uh, Numbing doesn't work. Running away from our pain doesn't work. No matter how fast we run, it runs faster. And so I'm I'm really delighted to see what I hope is the beginning of a kind of a a paradigm shift in the way that we, we think about, you know, how to solve these problems. I think you're right in that. People know that all the the pleasure seeking and escape buttons and all of that feel good, but they're not working. Like it, even if we don't cognitively know it, I think on a very soul on a soul level and intuitive level, we we know. So I'm I'm thrilled that it's being received well and it's delivered. And so science has a way of neutralizing <laughs> things. Yes, yeah, it is interesting how uh, science makes things accessible and palatable and believable even if it's really the same message, but in a kind of a different package. Yes. One of the things, too, that I do quite a bit of in my work, which is contrary to how I was trained, is I do a lot of thoughtful self-disclosure to let Mm -hmm. my patients know that, you know, I I struggle, too. That, you know, you can look at somebody and think they, they have it all together, and they may even have all of the wonderful things that, you know, people hope for in life and still be unhappy that, you know, it's yeah. sort of part of being alive, that, that being alive hurts and that we all have fears and doubts and we all struggle. And, and what I've discovered is that when we realize that and we stop trying to pretend like that's not the case and when we share our struggles, then, then we ease our suffering because there's that sense of shared humanity and that we're not in it alone. I want to go back briefly to the point about the fourth step in AA, I relied on AA a tremendous amount in early recovery and then and then found myself distancing going away from it. And I, I think the twelve steps are incredible. They're they're compact ancient spiritual wisdom and beautiful. And I I'm writing another book right now, so I'm just kind of using it as a Mm-hmm. As a Great. sounding board yeah. to see what Happy you think to. about this. Yeah. So they're not necessarily steps, but they sort of are. And the first one is it's not your fault. And then the second one is it, it is your responsibility. And and I think that while what my understanding of it is that blame at some point or maybe altogether is futile. So blaming our past, our parents, friends, this person or that person, or blaming ourselves does nothing. It's a dead end, but responsibility is entirely different. And I did not want to hear that I was responsible for my experience, that 
really pissed me off. <laughs> but after it pissed me off, I realized it's actually the best news because I can't control the circumstances of my life necessarily or what happens, but I can control how I react to them, which is my experience, right? And so that that's how I take that. And I, and I don't know how <laughs> they got that right in 1935 mm-hmm. with, with that fourth step. I think that was the intent. I don't know anybody who gets better without that step of Let's call it radical responsibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. Responsibility without blame. That's a really nice way to frame it. And I certainly see that in my work when patients come in and they're blaming everybody else for where they are in their lives. I know that those patients are ill and, and not in recovery. And the patients well, blaming themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, just everything. I'm, right. I'm the worst piece of shit. Mm-hmm. In the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's a trap too. Good point. But it's really fast. It's been fascinating for me when, when patients slowly change that narrative to be able to identify their own character flaws and what they have contributed to the problem. There, it's amazing how that opens up then their lives into this place of wellness and recovery that is just really powerful. And, and, and so I'm very convinced that the way that we narrate our lives is essential um, to mm. healing and mm-hmm. that there are, there are healing narratives and there are narratives that are, are not healing. Don't you think then that, that sort of process of pulling apart our stories, our narratives, because I, I think I know one of the reasons I was so attracted to writing. I mean, I wrote all that energy that I was using to drink. Hmm. I, poured into writing and it really it did many things for me but one I I say in this hyperbolic way that it saved my life but it really it really believe it did one of the reasons is is it helped me really straighten out my story yeah that's right and I think that's what happens I think in meetings that's what happens in you know one-on-one conversations with other people who have gone through the same thing Mm mm-hmm Right? Mm-hmm. You get a broader context for your story. There's a, a I'm going to pull a quote of, what the hell is it called? A Course in Miracles, which I don't even, I don't follow too much, but there's this one line that I never forgot where it's a, a, a miracle is just a shift in perception. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and when you can get the, the right shift of perception, it can feel like a miracle in your life. It can change everything. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, that... We really only exist in juxtaposition with each other. And mm-hmm. the way that we define ourselves is a slow process of essentially creating, imagining, and narrating ourselves through these micro-interactions with others. Without yeah. these interactions, there would be no narrative. And so you're absolutely right. It's this slow process of telling our stories and telling a story that approximates the truth as closely as possible which allows us to feel real in our bodies, you know, to be tethered Mm -hmm. to ourselves in a way that feels authentic and real, and also allows us to just make sense of our lives, to figure out true cause and effect. And, And figuring out true cause and effect is also then fundamental to making good choices going forward, because unless we really know why things happened, we won't be able to have informed decisions the next time around. 
So, so this right. is all really important and, and powerful. And I just would add that I think it's something that culturally is not encouraged. No. I think we have few opportunities in modern culture to get real feedback about ourselves. So for example, academia is rampant with recommendation letters that are not true. Um, yeah. You know, that people write that are praiseworthy because they feel they have to, because they're afraid of getting sued if they don't. We have classrooms now where it's really not possible to give people real feedback about their performance. Because, Why is that? Well, because perhaps, you know, we are triggering them or we're, we're harming it. them or we're discriminating against them. You know, we're, yep. all, we're all walking on, on eggshells. And as a result, we've really deprived ourselves of an opportunity to learn and grow. And we've also not developed the mental calluses that we need to tolerate that kind of critical feedback. But that kind of critical feedback, you know, when it's well-intentioned and Mm -hmm. empathic and true is is really hard to come by. And that's why I think a good therapist can be very valuable. So a good therapist will empathize, but at some point they will gently introduce, you know, a contrary interpretation of reality. And that may be the only place that that person's getting that information. Right. I mean, it's really, really valuable. I think families can be a place where this happens. I talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit in my book. Mm-hmm. I have a chapter on truth-telling and how, how important it is to give truthful feedback to our children and not try to protect them from some kind of psychological harm by telling them things that are not true about themselves. Like so what would be an example? An example would be that it is really important as parents that we point out to our kids their character defects and the ways in which those character defects make them difficult to live with, to interact with, and will probably interfere with their relationships going forward. And then we help them learn about their character defects and learn to ameliorate and cope with them. As opposed to what often happens now is, you know, we're all trying to be our kids' friends and we're, you know, we don't want them to be psychologically scarred, so we never tell them anything negative. I mean, this is just, it's gone too far. You know, what was originally a well-intentioned desire to, you know, raise mentally well children has really veered off course. So, So these kids are not getting real feedback. And then what happens is they go out into the world and they get like their first bit of real feedback and they collapse. They, they, oh, they, I know, they I know. You know. <laughs> yes. I have a 12-year-old, so I'm just eating this up right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so for example, from my own, you know, my own children, um, you know, our, our youngest son, he is a natural contrarian. And from the Ooh. earliest ages. <laughs> Fun for you. Know, you. <laughs> yeah, right. When we said, when we said yes, he said no. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so very early on, you know, we just sat down with him and said, you know, you have this tendency. It's like a quirk, you know, in your mental network that you want to do the opposite of whatever anyone tells you to do. And, and we said to him, you know, in some situations, that's going to be awesome. Like if you were growing up in Hitler, Germany, and everybody was joining the Nazi youth, and then you didn't join, you would be a hero. But right. in, most, in most situations in life, that's going to get you into trouble. So we just want yep. you to be aware of it and to think about it. And when you're doing it in a way that we think is, you know, not helpful for the family or for you, we're going to point it out. And you know what? He totally got it. Really? He totally, he totally got it. He was wow. probably maybe eight or nine years old. He totally got So when we named it for him, he was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I do do that. You know, so the naming of the thing, oh, he's now 14. And you know what? He's doing great. I mean, he's a little Asperger-y, so, you know, he's got some other challenges as well. But he's doing really, really great. 
Yeah, I mean, God, I could go so many places with this. And ultimately, this is leading into a social media discussion, which this plays a huge part, I think, because we're always performing on there. You said that ultimately, we want to aspire to tell the truth about ourselves and, and really uncover it and learn it by exchanging with other people. Right. The truth as best as we understand it in that moment. And that has been for me, like the act of recovery and, and continues to be. This explains everything that I have felt about truth, which is that you say it, it's telling the truth serves as a dopamine like regulation mechanism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So my, probably my favorite chapter in the book is the chapter called Radical Honesty, where yeah. I really try to dissect what it is about telling the truth about everything, not not just the big things, but also the small things that's so important for recovery and a life well-lived. It's a theme I've seen again and again, and you know there are many different ways that truth-telling is central to recovery, and it works through a number of different mechanisms, which I identify. One of, one of them is that it promotes intimacy, so when we tell people the truth about yep. the ways in which we're, we're broken, people are drawn to us. We think they'd be repelled, but they're not. It's the opposite. They're, no. they're drawn to us. Honesty to, you know, is tell- very attractive. I, I- right, <laughs> right. As long as it's authentic honesty, right? And it's yeah, not yeah, some yeah, sort yeah. of manipulative honesty. Right. I had this, I had a good guy friend in early recovery who I later ended up dating and, you know, that didn't last, but he joked that I was like, why do people, why do you like AA meetings? Because he was the most enthusiastic person about AA that I'd ever seen. He, mm-hmm. you would have never thought that he was sitting in an AA meeting. He was, it was like he was, uh, I don't even know, like watching his favorite movie, eating cake or something. He was so <laughs> happy. Just uh-huh. the biggest shit eating grin on his face. Right. And he's like, because honesty is so sexy. Ah, interesting. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you're kind of right. And yeah. you know, we were younger and in Boston and there's all these attractive people in meetings and right. you're all figuring this stuff out and everyone's senses are heightened and all that. But it was, right. I really did remember that because he got mm-hmm. me to see it that way, to, mm-hmm. to uh, he was one of the yeah. first people that I practiced telling mm-hmm. the truth with, like nice. everything. Nice. Yeah. 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 And I love the way you, you use the word practice because it does require practice because oh, our natural God. default is to lie. And that's oh, yeah. just not, that's not just people, you know, struggling with addiction. That's all no. of us, right? Yeah. We're, we're all kind of natural liars. And it's okay, usually so little <laughs> things, you know, little supposedly inconsequential things. I have, because of my patients, I have changed my entire orientation on lying. I, I huh. now try, every day I get up, I try really hard to tell the truth about everything, if I can. And I slip all the time, all the yeah. time. But mm-hmm. at least I notice it when I do. And I go, oh, wow, that's really weird. Why did I say that like that? Which was <laughs> yeah. really close to the truth. It was like 99.9999%, but it wasn't 100%. <laughs> no. And you can feel that once you start to do this in your life, yeah. I, I know I can't tolerate, I literally can't tolerate dishonesty within myself. I'll get really sick. And these are things you hear, but you don't really know why. Right. Uh, but this, what, that's what I loved about what you, what you explain is that there's a, 
there's science behind it. You know, there is. It's fascinating. Right. And some of the science. So one of the things that we think happens when people are in the throes of addiction is that the neural networks in the prefrontal cortex, which is our the part of our brain involved in decision-making, planning, storytelling, delayed gratification, mm-hmm. and which is has very important communicative neural networks with our emotion brain, our limbic brain, our reward brain, that essentially those two parts of the brain stop talking to each other. And you kind of have this prefrontal cortex that's telling stories and, you know, making decisions that's not connected to what's going on in the reward pathways or the emotion pathways. And that part of what happens in recovery is that we reconnect those two regions of the brain. And there are even now, you know, interventions specifically designed like transcranial a magnetic stimulation that, that people are now using to treat addiction that essentially stimulates the prefrontal cortex in hopes of it making connections with the reward pathway. So it's, it's really, you know, really fascinating to look at some of those potential targeted interventions that will strengthen the areas of the brain that need st- more strengthening in addiction, like the prefrontal cortex, and calming down those areas that need calming, like the limbic brain or the, right. the reward pathway. And what I postulate in the book, which I believe to be true, is that telling the truth, so the, the project of intentional engagement with radical truth-telling, actually strengthens the prefrontal cortex and strengthens mm. these connections between the prefrontal cortex and our limbic emotion reward brain, our primitive lizard brain. And, and, and so that telling the truth is actually a healing process, that, that there's real neurological changes that occur um, as a result of, of that practiced behavior. And it's also hard and challenging, which is good because we need challenges. You know, we need good challenges. Yeah. It's like, I'll wake up and I'm like, okay, let's see if I can get through the whole day without telling a single lie. Like, okay, yeah. you know, that's like kind of fun, kind of a fun project, right? It's, it's also a, yeah, that's a very courageous one. Any day that someone does that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because you, you almost need like the lyometer that like has to go off, right? Because like otherwise you just slip into it. It's like, you know, what was I saying the other day? I said, oh, yeah, you know, like just typical would be like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry I'm late for this meeting. The traffic was terrible. Traffic wasn't terrible. You know, I wanted five more minutes to read to read the paper and drink my coffee. But, you right. know, I just said it's right. so much easier to say traffic was terrible. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of the podcast. At TMST, we're passionate about having conversations that bring us together and help us stoke our love of life. That's why we created a dedicated site for the show. It's free. It's not a Facebook group. And we aren't mining your data to target you with ads. So check it out. And while you're there, please join TMST Plus, our paid membership group. TMST Plus members will play the critical role and keeping this going and ad-free. There are no corporations backing us. There's no advertisers. I mean, it's really up to us to pull together and make it happen. You can make a one-time contribution, or you can join our monthly program, where you can help shape the show, hear the complete unedited interviews, and join regular online experiences with Laura. But know this, you can make a huge difference right now for as little as $10 a month. You can find the link in the show description, 
And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now and join us. Continuing this thread about truth, you mentioned it's a pretty brief part in the, the one conversation I've heard with you, with, which is with Dr. Huberman, um, about social media and that you don't do it and because you just knew that you would be addicted to it. Right. So I recently stepped away from it after having a, a conflicted relationship with, with it for years. I started to realize the parallels with my drinking and social media Mm -hmm. and like literally the you know bargaining about it (laughs) making Mm -hmm. arbitrary rules trying to set up these systems and controls to regulate it the extreme highs and the extreme Mm -hmm. lows Mm -hmm. and this feeling that I needed it to connect Mm -hmm. you know I had all these stories about drinking that I needed it for my business life because I worked mm-hmm. in advertising and everybody right. drank and mm-hmm. I needed it like how was I going to have relationships or date or have sex and like you said earlier it's not that that alcohol doesn't do anything for for people <laughs> it certainly mm-hmm. does mm-hmm. Right. and it's not that social media I mean social media did a lot for me right. but I recently stepped back from it and I just can't stop thinking about what exactly it is, and there's Mm. many things, Mm -hmm. but what exactly it is that it was doing to me and and likely doing to others. And I've Mm. I've spent a lot of time trying to pull it apart. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that occurred to me as I have heard you talk is this part about truth. And I don't know if this is too much of a stretch, but this was my middle of the night (laughs) brainstorm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like tying the effects of lying and what that if it dysregulates the dopamine system, aside from the fact that, you know, that being on social media itself is like dopamine, you know, it's like a dopamine. What would you call it? Uh, Hit. Yeah. At least Mm -hmm. it's like a Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, the, the big gulp that this part of about lying and telling the truth, that that is a, a major player in in the dopamine system as it relates to social media because I don't I wouldn't go on there and outright lie mostly like on on Instagram but I definitely and I don't think anybody presents as totally honest because we know we have an audience Mm -hmm. and and we know that just like you were saying in academia there's all these arbitrary things that the motives aren't aligned right. and the rewards mm-hmm. aren't aligned mm-hmm. appropriately so that we are motivated to tell the real truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then there is the, the fact that I have absolutely lied in mm-hmm. the sense that if I mm-hmm. know a certain comment or a post is going to align me with certain people, mm-hmm. potentially millions of people, because mm-hmm. we know that. We know mm-hmm. that, that yeah. that's how big right. it is. Mm-hmm. I, I have said things that aren't really true for me because I, mm-hmm. I want to be in with certain people or I know, you know, a specific person might be watching or and or I want to distance myself from other people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in 
there's this cumulative dishonesty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you do you right. think that that's true, or am I like stretching this way too far? No, I mean I, I absolutely agree with you, and I, I I write about that, you know, in, in the chapter on radical honesty. It's not just that lying is morally wrong. And I do believe that there, that the natural order of the universe extends to a moral law that we should mm-hmm. abide by. Mm-hmm. But it's also that lying is, in fact, emotionally dysregulating in that we then are engaged in the creation of this false self. And the false self is a concept that psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott coined in mm-hmm. the last century to describe the effort that we put into into projecting a certain image of ourselves, which is not consistent with who we really are. And as I write in the book, that, that's very dangerous because once we're curating this false image of ourselves online or otherwise, we become alienated from ourselves and we start to not feel real in the world and not tethered yes. to our existence. And that generates enormous amounts of anxiety and dysphoria and is a, is a really dangerous place to be. And that an essential part of maintaining, you know, a healthy mental state is in fact being grounded in our true selves, not lying, and being honest about, you know, ourselves, even when there will be consequences. And of course, that that is the key there. The one of the main reasons that we lie, especially these social self-aggrandizing lies, is because we want people to like us and we right. want people to join with us and we want praise and when sometimes telling the truth will in the short term threaten that but i do believe that in the long term it is it is still better to tell the truth because mm-hmm. suffering those short term consequences is an opportunity to reevaluate and to grow and also you know to potentially affiliate with other people who do agree with us um, as opposed yeah. to, you know, you know, a sort of a false group of <sighs> yes. friends. But I right. do want to validate those still. First of all, I appreciate your, really appreciate your, your honesty about that experience. And, you know, you're definitely not alone. I mean, the, the pressure to not say, you know, what we really believe in certain contexts because we, we're, we, we fear being shunned or excluded. It's just super, super powerful because you know, we all, we're, we're social beings. Like we want to belong to the tribe and the thought of the tribe abandoning us and leaving us behind is just, I mean, truly terrifying. Yeah, but, but, survival levels. Yeah, right. I mean, you get, mm-hmm. that's right. You get down to real primitive brain stuff. But I still think it's, it's worth it. I try really, really hard, for example, in these interviews to not lie. Now, yeah. now that sometimes, and, and I, I think I mostly succeed. I don't always tell the full extent of a story. You know, I might withhold sure. some information, but I, I try really hard to never say something that I don't really believe. And it does mean that, you know, I have detractors or that I ha- I, I mean, I get some hate mail or I mm-hmm. get criticized or, you know, and that's people's right to do that. And I, I, I appreciate criticism as long as it's not done in, a, in an unkind way. Yeah, which which it's speaks to, because you yourself have decided not to be on social media, there's a difference between getting feedback, like you're talking about, like with your son, the necessity of provide, of having places where we can get honest feedback about who we are and and things that may or may not be working. 
But when you have these false selves interacting with these false selves yeah. <laughs> online, it's like this, for me, the circle of concern was totally unmanageable. It's not mm-hmm, just right. the five people in my life that I care about the most. It's millions of people who potentially could say things that even if I know they're not true, right? my body could not tolerate right. the potential of all the, it, it was like I had this overwhelming sense of anxiety that something bad was going to happen. Right. Like pending doom. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if I have this and I, I don't even post things, I mean, really that are that controversial. I, I guess some people would say I post things about sobriety and recovery that would, that folks in AA maybe, for example, found controversial, but Anything can be controversial now. You know, we're addicted mm-hmm, to this yeah. this outrage. And so to me, that feels like the most bait. It's like this, these um, holograms of each other interacting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, what does that do to us? We're all so human, right? I mean, we're all vulnerable to these things and, and we all make mistakes. And I just think, you know, you're you're acknowledging that that this community that's built online with with millions of people it, it can lift you way way high and mm-hmm. in the next heartbeat it can drop you and leave you bleeding i mean i think i've become really impressed the older i get at how fundamental trust is to meaningful relationships if we don't mm. have trust we don't have anything and, I, and trust is so important because trust allows us to give and receive real critical feedback without the fear of abandonment. Right. And that is really, really important. You know, and I, again, my last chapter is about shame and, and the pro-social aspects of shame. Uh, and that really the difference between pro-social shame and um, sort of destructive malignant shame is not so much our subjective experience but how others respond to our transgressions and when people Mm. acknowledge that we've done something wrong but don't shun us then you build trust and then you create a pathway for overcoming shame whereas if people just you know kick you to the curb then you just want to go drink again and that online community is just probably not a safe space is the bottom line it's just not a safe space I also think here that you know ultimately I'm as wonderful as people can be, you know, we're all so fallible that I do believe that it's important to have a higher power mm-hmm. as a kind of steadying, guiding light. So where you can just sort of, you know, talk to your higher power and say, now, wh- what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And is this something I really believe? What do I really believe? Is this, is, right. is this something I really believe? What, what is right and wrong here? What, what should I do? What is the good and right thing to do? And once you've kind of had that conversation, then you know what? It doesn't really matter what other people say because you did the best that you could do. You took the time, you looked deeply, and you made the best decision that you could make with every good intention. It doesn't always work out, but it wasn't for lack of trying and it wasn't for lack of being thoughtful. Right. I think, I think in a lot of ways that in absence of that, people have made online figures, influencers, and yeah. even sort of social False media gods. itself, right. a, a mm-hmm. higher power. Yeah, that's truly. right. Truly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I, what mm-hmm. you said reminded me, 
Uh, Zadie Smith is a novelist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She has commented a fair amount on social media. She's not on it. And I pulled her this quote because I thought it might be helpful or relevant in our conversation. So she says, I want to have my feeling, even if it's wrong, even if it's inappropriate, express it to myself in the privacy of my heart and my mind. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be bullied out of it. And then she continues, I understand it's important to be appropriate in public life, in social life, and in political life, but in your soul, no, this is a different thing. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. should be able to retain the right to be wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm wrong almost all the time. It's okay to be wrong. It really is okay. Mm-hmm. You just have to mm-hmm. sit with the feeling and deal with it. Yeah. I never feel that certain in the first place. So this kind of succession of mistakes is just what I call my novels. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. That's so nice. I really like that. That's that's really beautifully done. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. So the last piece, this really speaks to everything that we've said so far about social media. Mm -hmm. So there's one psychologist who has 4 million plus followers on Instagram. So this is a a real-time scenario that just happened. She became known for putting out really bite-sized sort of information about trauma and psychological principles that mm-hmm. weren't really mainstream. She had a, mm-hmm. a, a really good way of condensing information and presenting it. The following is, is now huge. And, you know, this is this weird line between are we invested in information or are now we invested in this person mm. and the choice of a person to use their public life then as part of their way of teaching. She mm-hmm. came out and said she's in a, um, a three-person relationship, and that's not even the point. The point was the post was made. There was a bajillion comments. And then a few days later, the follow-up post is what's really interesting to me. She, she says, I, when I posted this, I had... 20,000 people unfollow me. These are a couple lines. She says, mm-hmm. I know that when you speak to me, she's talking about people that projected their distaste and, and dislike of her announcement, you know, how unhealthy okay. it is, mm-hmm. and the reaction mm-hmm. to her telling everyone that she's in a three-person relationship. Mm-hmm. She says, I know that when you speak to me, you're speaking to you too, and that must hurt. Mm. And then she goes on to say... Our work is to learn how to be the love, to learn to compassionately hold space for the opinions, reactions, beliefs, and to resist the ego's desire to shame them or punishment. We need to learn to trust that we each know what is best for our own lives. Then at the end, it says this space, meaning her space and Instagram, Mm -hmm. is for the courageous warriors willing to go inwards willing to remember who we actually are and willing to forgive in the moments we forget. And the hashtag is self-healers. And I read that last part, especially the line, this is a space for courageous warriors. I mean, I don't know what to call it other than shaming Mm. or in-group, out-group type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. you're courageous, you're here. (laughs) And if Mm -hmm. you're not, you must not be willing Mm -hmm. to do the work. And so there's all this intense energy around these types of things. And she's just one example. 
And again, yeah. it's really not about her. It's about this phenomenon online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's so much energy around it. You can feel it when you go into a post like that. Mm-hmm. This right. phenomenon of in-group and out-group dynamics and then dogpiling and dunking people and scapegoating. Mm-hmm. Is there any part of this that's good for people? And is there really a, a moderate amount of social media use? Like, mm-hmm. is there? Yeah, right. Well, okay, here, here's, here are, I mean, I, I couldn't pop, possibly speak to all of that because I don't even know yeah. what I think yet. You're right, but, right. But, but, but what I can say um, is that I, I think that social media can be a wonderful place to learn and exchange ideas and even create, discover, create, and maintain some very intimate bonds, especially if they're reinforced with um, in real life um, encounters. But even having said that, I I believe that there are people who are meeting and having powerful and meaningful connections with people online that they'll never see in real life and that that's good and can be good Mm -hmm. and positive. Mm -hmm. But what, what I think what you're getting at here is the scale um, and when you're dealing with, you know, groups of people, and by the way, we, again, we have an intrinsic need to belong to groups. We are tribal mm-hmm. creatures. And when you're dealing with it at this scale of millions of people um, communicating online and defining themselves through their online communications, that's not at, no longer at the human scale. Like that right. is not, that is more than what humans can process. And right. I think then it, it inevitably goes awry. It's just not at a scale for which we and our brains were designed. We, we were designed for the unit of, you know, uh, of the family, uh, of the neighborhood, possibly of a small village. We weren't designed <laughs> for the tribe of 4.3 million people. It's just, it's just inevitably going to take on a life of its own which is, you know, going to at times be amazing and at other times be really, really awful. So yeah, I guess my, you know, my reaction to that story is I sort of feel for everybody. I, I mm-hmm. feel for the woman who, you know, who posted. I feel mm-hmm. for the people who supported her. I feel for the people who, you know, expressed her their contrary opinions and, you know, had a got strong... Got shamed for it, right. Yeah, yeah, got shamed for it or she tried to shame them. Who knows if they really felt shamed since it sounds like a lot of them dropped out. But I, I, I think that the, the human reactions and instincts are just sort of natural and normal, but just on such a massive scale that it's just really not possible for us, us to process all of that. And, and that's where you really realize that this just can be, the engagement can be really unhealthy. And that's yeah. when you really just have to say, you know what, I, I, this is not good in my life, right? Mm. I, I think it's also just important to reiterate what a powerful emotion shame is. And shame fundamentally comes from that fear of transgressing, you know, some kind of moral or social transgression. And then the fear of abandonment that will be kicked out of the tribe, you know, that will be left behind or or, or like violently expelled. And that emotion of shame is devastating and overwhelming, generates enormous anxiety and is really hard to just sit with and live with. I can tell you as somebody who has become, you know, somewhat of a, a public person just mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, speaking publicly about things. I have to deal with that emotion a lot. I experience that a lot. 
And really? I just have to, I just, I have to sit with it. Yeah. I just have to not engage, you know, not retaliate. I'm just, just acknowledge, Hey, you know what? That's part of sticking your neck out mm-hmm. and making certain claims. And that's sort of the, the price of admission in a way. And then you have to kind of do the calculus. Is it worth it? Do you believe in your ideas enough that you're willing to tolerate that you might be shamed and shut out and discredited for it? And so those are, those are hard things. They're very hard things. Were you ever on social media and why did you decide to not do it, not participate? Yeah, so I never went on social media. I, I sort of had an instinctive awareness <laughs> that that would yeah. not be good for me. The other thing that I worry about is the the immediacy of it and the tendency to have like an, a quick reaction. I, I whenever I have a strong emotional reaction to something, I, I like to sit on it for a while, yeah. sort it out. Yeah. And social media doesn't encourage that. Nope. What I'm talking more about is the the books that I've written. You know, the first book that I wrote is called Drug Dealer MD, and it's mm-hmm. about the overprescribing of opioids and other psychotropics. And it was very counterculture when I wrote it, and I received a lot of um, you know negative negative reactions. And still to this day, it's I have to deal with that. But I believe so much that what I wrote is true and important for people to know that I'm I'm willing. To, you know, to tolerate it, but it's not easy. No, it's not. And, and, you know, what we know is we, we kill our profits <laughs> we, before right. we call them profits. And we, you yeah. know, popular ideas are never really popular. Big ideas, ideas that change things are never very popular when they first come out. I just so, I can't even tell you how much I appreciate your time. And I'm just, I'm also really grateful you're doing the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I thank you too for your work. And I applaud you for your recovery, an enormous life accomplishment. And uh, I've enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you for hanging out with us today. We want every episode of Tell Me Something True to give you something you can use in your life. We also don't want there to be any barriers between us. That's why we built our own online community. It's free, it's not Facebook. And you can head on over to tmstpod.com to connect with folks around this episode. Also, have you noticed there aren't any ads on TMST? That's by design. We wanna keep the show and our digital spaces ad-free but that's a goal we can only accomplish if we work together. And that's where you can make a huge difference. TMST is being built as an ad-free, subscriber-driven project. The subscribing members will play the critical role in keeping this going and keeping it ad-free. There are no corporations backing us, no sponsors, so it's really up to us. And the good news is folks are signing up. Thank you so much to all of you who have come on board for this very unusual way to do things. You can join them when you make a one-time contribution or join our monthly program. We have cool opportunities for you to help shape the show, hear the complete unedited interviews, ask our guests questions before they're on, and connect with other TMST folks. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $10 a month. So head on over to tmstpod.com right now.
Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time at Tell Me Something True. Mm -hmm.